Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name. I'm glad you're here. Um, a couple questions to start us off. Do you think it's possible to be encouraged and discouraged at the same time? Uh, so when you're discouraged, it's glad. I'm glad uh, it's nice to have people encourage you. And I'm not really that terribly discouraged. I don't mean it that way. But um, I posted some questions yesterday, and it looks like at least a lot of you that are in my contact list saw them. So some of you were encouraging and answered, uh, at least gave me a thought, which was, was that after, and some of you didn't. So for those of you that didn't, I'm going to take for granted you forgot and give you an opportunity this afternoon. Um, otherwise, it means that you were either too lazy or didn't want to think about it, and so I'm not going to think that about you. So I'm still waiting to hear from you. Uh, you know, one of my friends I used to go to church with years ago, he's pretty much left the church. He saw him too, and uh, he basically... Well, I'll say it in my own words. He said, good luck with that. He said, those people won't answer you. I said, actually, they've been doing pretty good tonight. So for those of you that have, I'm proud of you. Those that haven't, um, a little sorrow in my heart. So I see if you can perk up and help me out there. I'd appreciate it. And we would really like to hear from everyone. Um, enough of that. So the primary verse was, uh, did I catch it right? Who's in primary? Uh, see, I know what my girl is. One of them is there some more primary people. Can you raise your hand? Could you say your verse real loud for me again? Does it start with the word faith? Okay, I'll say the first word and you say the rest of it. Okay, ready? Let's go. Faith. James 2.17. Uh, faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Now, uh, that brought up a question I'd like to ask. Maybe, well, primary is welcome to answer it, but I it's going to direct this at everybody. Uh, what's the difference between faith, a dead faith and a living faith? And you can be very superficial if you want to because that verse tells you, but I wanted you to go a, bit, a step deeper perhaps than what the verse is saying right at, the, right at that place. Anybody want to tell me? Well, tell me why the verse says it's dead. Anyone? So works, uh, in my mind, I don't know, maybe you're different, but works is what I see, right? If I'm working when you come around, you can sort of see I'm doing something, probably. I mean, hopefully. Uh, sometimes, depending on what work you're doing, it's a little hard to see. Uh, and, but yet, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, even sitting in an office, while that's not as physical as some work it's amazing to me how uh, my daughters can walk over there and they can pretty quickly determine whether I'm working or playing uh, somehow they know what the difference is uh, and so when you're working uh, there's there's something occurring right that shows so what prompts work in faith anybody tell me belief okay anybody else love okay uh, we'll let you think about that for a moment. I guess I would like to say I've been on a bit of a journey into my own heart. And that's a process I sometimes wish would end a little quicker than what it does. And I've been finding that necessary again. So I'm going to invite you along onto this journey. Not because of me, but I guess in the hopes that it would play a role uh, that maybe that process can be beneficial for you. So let, before we go there uh, completely, I'm going to start with an illustration. Um, let's see here. I'm just going to make a line for this, even though it's more than that. Let's see. Actually, maybe I won't. I'll make two lines. Uh, it's a little complicated here. I think yeah, this will be close enough. Take this one now. Okay, since my uh, 
I understand that my drawing abilities don't rate very high. I'm not going to try to ask you what you think that is. Uh, how many of you have been at the confluence or the coming together of the White River and the Buffalo? Raise your hand if you've been there. Okay, some of you. Um, It's actually probably one of, right in there is one of my favorite uh, happy places. I don't know, I like it there. Um, so it's an interesting situation here in that the White River, well, let's just, let me describe the two rivers briefly. The Buffalo, I, I don't know, maybe the easiest way to describe it is it's, it's the real Arkansas article. It makes me think of a lot of the construction people that I work with here in Arkansas. Uh, it just, it might get there sometime, but it's in no rush to get there, right? Uh, it, it uh, sort of flows. Uh, yeah, when you're sitting in it, you do eventually drift somewhere, but you're going nowhere fast. It's, it's uh, actually one of the things it's famous for is family, family float trips and so on because, well, I mean, let's just say if you drown in the buffalo, you tried pretty hard or I guess there's some deep pools. But other than that, it's a mild river. Now, the White River is a bit of a different river. Uh, upstream about, uh, let's see, I forget my mileage, I think it's about 30 miles, yeah, 30 some, I'm pretty sure. Upstream from this point is the Bull Shoals Dam. And interestingly enough, Bull Shoals Dam has one of the highest electricity generating things of anywhere close in this area by quite a few megawatts. And so the river, they keep what they call minimum flow. The lowest I've ever seen the White River was when a fellow in Batesville dro drove his car in in uh, the dam there and they shut the flow off completely to try to find him um, so it can get low most of the time they're running at least one to two generators and every generator they add adds so many mile per hour to the flow and so one to the the minimal is usually one so the normal flow you can wait a lot of places it's got some deep pools but it's still moving pretty good and what's interesting is right here like I told you this is a pretty big float place and so there's a lot of people come start upstream and come floating paddling down through here now the interesting thing is right here there's a boat uh, Arkansas game and fish boat dock here there's a boat rental place and here there's a boat rental place and that's where most of these people want to take out do you see any problem with that uh, I've seen a lot of problems with that uh, so what these people will do it varies. Some put in here. Well, guess what? It's pretty easy to come floating down the current. It's flowing this way, by the way, in case you didn't catch that. It's pretty easy to flow down river and get to the buffalo, and you can paddle up the buffalo no problem. And so most people go and spend a good day, whatever they're doing. They come back, and they want to go back to where they came from. And uh, I told uh, someone yesterday, I said, well, I don't know if I actually told them all this said part of it. Um, I guess when I'm too old to paddle that river myself, I'm going to set myself. There's sort of like an island here. I think I'll just wait out to that island and watch the other people because it's pretty humorous. Um, they'll come. Uh, they, they, uh, I'll just tell you a couple before I move on here. I, I noticed three things. Now, I know I don't know all about these people, so maybe what I saw was my supposition. But uh, I saw one group leave here yesterday. And they came down through, and they were having a lot of fun. Uh, it was easy going. It didn't, I didn't see they might have had some hidden somewhere, but I didn't see that they had any water or any food, and they were headed out, and they were having a party. And they were headed down river. Uh, now, the interesting thing is the boats they had, I happen to know, came from, from the launch ramp area so that they had brought their own. And I don't know if you realize this, but unless you pay somebody to take your vehicle from here down to somewhere down river, you actually have to go back up river if you want your vehicle. Um, and so I don't know what their plan was, but I've seen many people like them. In fact, a couple of us here actually rescued someone from top of a down tree right down in here one time that didn't have a plan that worked out very well for them. Um, yeah, so you can have a lot of fun floating, and uh, you can go places, but if you don't have a plan to get back, it makes a problem. Now, we saw somebody else yesterday. Now, these fellows were prepared. They had a nice camp about up in here. They had a kayak and a canoe, and they set up a nice camp, and I would say that they did a pretty good job of planning. They had a tent. They had a canopy. They had life figured out. 
I thought they did. Uh, they were actually there. They beat me on the river because they were sleeping there. Uh, first thing I saw of them, actually, they were going back to the to here to eat breakfast, which I had to skip breakfast. So, you know, in some ways, the appearance was that they were way ahead of me. Um, they had their life plan. So they ate breakfast, and then a while later, they came paddling down through here, and I thought, I wonder, I wonder how their plan works. Uh, just as I watch people, it's often something I think. So I was wondering, now, do they go down river, up river? So if they go down river, those poor boys might have a hard time unless they have a real plan in place. Well, they came out here. I looked like a dad and his two boys. I don't know. I didn't ask him. So the dad valiantly tries to paddle up river here. And I'll just tell you right now, I have never seen, even at minimal flow, somebody effectively do that at this point. Uh, you can do it at some other points. But right here, I have yet to see somebody that can go upstream and paddle fast enough to make any headway. So he tried, and eventually he drifted down, and he came out and landed on a bar about here. So meanwhile, his two boys, let's call them, were sort of fooling around over here in their canoe, and he's over here now, and so he's telling them to come. And they head out, and they, they worked hard. I mean, I'm talking about seriously hard, but to absolutely to no effect, and they were actually losing backwards, and Dad, or whoever he is, is over here hollering and telling them how to do it, and they're paddling for all they're worth, not getting anywhere. And so, you know, all their planning, as good as it was, it seemed to me it had a little bit of a flaw in it, uh, because they all, eventually, he waded out and grabbed them, and they all ended up sitting here, over here on this gravel bar, uh, not really doing what I'm guessing they came to do, because it sure didn't look like that was their initial intent. Now, also, uh, there was two other people out there that did have a plan and uh, their plan actually was didn't look too dissimilar but for their plan they paddled rather than trying to fight it hard they just paddled across and then they walked waded up through here and then they paddled some more across here to where they could drag across some rocks here and then they were able to work their way up along the edge of the river And you know, I would say while they worked hard, there was nothing that was not in their plan. It was uh, what they planned to do. It was part of their good day, if you want to call it that. And as I journeyed into my own heart, I saw some similarities in how people approach the White and the Buffalo River as to how we approach some things in our spiritual life. Sometimes we unfortunately just don't have a plan. We sort of just go out and think this is going to work out somehow, only to recognize quite a while later that maybe these things aren't so good. We need some help. Maybe we think we have it together, and that's probably where a lot of Mennonites are. We sort of think we have it together. We sort of think that we'll, we'll work this out. We're strong. We're healthy. We can paddle upstream. We can make this work. Only to find out that in the very difficult times in life, something's not quite working out. Or, maybe by the grace, the mercy of God, we, of course, can't make complete preparation. But we can realize that hard times will come. We can realize that there will be trials, that there will be temptations. We realize that just bumbling along is not quite good enough. Just thinking that having a camp where it's all together is not quite going to win all the victories. And it takes some foundation, some core things to get us through. And because of that preparation, perhaps when those times come and we face that current, we don't have to be as discouraged or give up and sit on the sandbar because there was preparation. So all that to move on into the next thing here. You know, all those people and what they faced faced the exact same current. And this life isn't necessarily that way, but on the river. The exact same obstacles, but for some of them, it was an interesting challenge. They planned for it, while for others, it probably messed up their day pretty majorly. Transitioning to the spiritual, next in importance to and in combination with searching and knowing God. I feel it's important that we search out and seek to know our own heart. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. 
Proverbs chapter 4. You know, it was interesting in that uh, one question I had asked about motives. A good friend of mine, and it really doesn't make any difference, but he is a pastor in a congregation, sent me a message on the one about motives, and he said, that one's too scary to answer. So I guess if some of you felt that way, maybe you have some sympathy there at least. I was thinking about that. You know, there's something about looking into our heart that we would just rather avoid sometimes, wouldn't we? How about you? It, it, it'd be fun to go out for a float trip and not worry about finding our way back. Let's just go. Let's go have fun. But friends, it doesn't work that way this morning. You're going to get in trouble. We've got to stop. We've got to look into our heart. Let's see what God says about this. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 13, and then I'll skip to verse 18. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of instruction. But if you were to look that word up in Strong's, it actually means quite a bit more than just getting your math or your language book out and learning a new concept for the day. Instruction here actually has more the thought of reproof or chastisement. I was going to say there's some people in my house that don't like instruction. As I thought about that some more, I was going to tell you that there's hardly anybody in our house that likes it. I think that's probably the most accurate statement. Take fast hold of instruction. And you know, the thing is, probably hard enough for me not to run away from instruction when it comes. And here I'm supposed to hang on to it. How about that? It's bad enough when somebody comes and um, tells me a blind spot or tells me something I would rather have not have known and to just uh, take it calmly, correctly, learn from it and grow. Like I said, that's awful hard work. But he's, he's actually encouraging us to do more than just not run away. He's actually, in my words, he's telling us to go seek it out. Take fast hold. Get a hold of it. Hang on for all your worth. Uh, you, know, you might need to. At least I do. Anyways, let's go on to verse 18. But the path of the just, those are doing right, is a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Contrasted to the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. My son or my daughter, attend to my words. Incline or give your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. I guess here I just see the, I have the mental picture of an older person, somebody that's experienced some real difficulties in life, telling a younger person, a son or a daughter, or a similar relationship, attend, pay attention. Open your ears. Hear what I have to say. Don't let them come get away from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. And that word keep again, if you look it up, it's, it's an amazing word. It means to build a fortress, to actually build a strong fence with like thorns or something around it. Keep them. Make sure they don't get away. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Verse 23. Keep, again, thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues, are the real things in life. Put away from thee a froward mouth, one that's quick to speak, and perverse lips, lips that say things they shouldn't. Put far from thee. Verse 25, let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand, nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. You know, it's interesting uh, for a class I've taught for a number of years that verse 26 has been my theme verse. And I thought I was doing it and trying to help others, and I've just slowly started realizing how much pondering is left for me to do. Ponder the path of thy feet. Ponder the path of thy feet. You know, it's one thing to sit there or stand there and tell 18 and 20-year-olds some things to think about their path because they need to. But, you know, I've got a couple years on them now, and I just need to think as much as ever. Ponder. Why am I doing what I'm doing? 
If we flip over to Proverbs 5, verse 21, I just, um, I knew this verse was here, but I sort of just connected it more recently to this passage. 521, it says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. You know, friends, this morning, whether you think about the path you're on or not, God is. God is thinking about each step that you take. And he sees the reason for that step. I told you looking into our own heart is not a comfortable process. At least it isn't for me all the time. Sometimes it's harder than others. And yet, if we don't do it, God is weighing those. And it makes me think of, I think it's Belteshazzar, where the writing on the wall it says, Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. Friend, the only way this morning you're going to be able not to be found wanting is if you, can I say, beat God to it? If you do the thinking, if you do the seeking. Because if you somehow go your happy, lucky way and go down your float, float down the river of life without taking thought of how you're going to face this, you are going to end in trouble just as surely as that semi-drunk lady that a couple of us rescued from that river. Just as surely. So let's ask a couple questions. Why do I do what I do? I'm not talking just necessarily, yes, the work I do, but all of life. Why do I do what I do? Why do I take time for the things that I make time for? Why do I spend time with the people I do? Why do I have the kind of friends I do? Why do I spend the, my resources the way I do? Why do I have the attitudes I do? Why do I dislike some people while I like other people? What is the innermost, the core reason for the choices I make and the direction I take? I would like to suggest to you that on Judgment Day, there will be many surprised people. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to tell you, I think there's going to be many surprised Mennonites, if I said use that word. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works and I will profess unto them I never knew you depart from me ye that work iniquity and I cannot think of the worse phrase to hear God say than to come before him on judgment day thinking that I somehow had it together and then to have God tell me I never knew you That would have to be the absolute worst phrase anybody could ever hear. In some ways, it'd have to be worse than maybe even somebody that deliberately knows they did wrong. Because if you fooled yourself into thinking that you can take this happy float trip and it's all going to go good, and then at the end you found out you totally got that all mixed up, how devastating that would have to be. Dear friends, this morning, I'm not here to be negative or to inspire fear, but let's not play games with our life. I think we're at a time, and I was reading some secular articles where it says that culturally, we have got to a place where we can no longer stand people that speak things that we don't want to hear. And we are not far removed. In fact, I would say that in the last couple of years, in working among different churches, I am noticing more and more where if somebody speaks truth and people don't like it, they try to slam them. I'd say, let's stop it. I'm by no means a perfect messenger this morning. I get it and I know, and it must be terrible hard to sit there, especially for my home church, and know all my weaknesses and know all where I could do better and should do better. And so help me. I do want to hang on to instruction. At the same time, if what is spoken is true and you're unwilling to accept it because you're unwilling to look into your heart, my friends, stop right there. You've got something that you've got to take care of. Please be serious. Please be honest. Please be open. Please be vulnerable. Please be intentional about your life. 
Be committed to a serious contemplation of your motives and of your life. There is no such thing as an accidental Christian. There is nothing like a casual stroll down the narrow way. Each step, each action, each motive must be honestly considered and held up for scrutiny. If I have a fear, it is a fear that many to most of us somehow think that we can get to eternity without less effort, with somehow less effort than our all. We cannot afford the luxury of being thoughtless. Those who do not invest careful thought and consideration in their path will not end up where they planned. To me it seems... Okay, let me back up. That if I was to ask... You would very quickly tell me that you can't depend on your parents. You can't depend on the church to save you. We know it up here. But when I see how we live sometimes, I'm not so sure we really believe that. Do you follow me? It seems to me we rather complacently, to some degree, yes, we live in denial of it, depend on who we are. And what we think we know to get us through. That is not enough. So many others are doing the same thing. You know, I think, and I'm talking, like I said, this is coming out of my own heart. God, I, God bless you if you don't have any problem with this, but I do. So let's say it this way. I have this tendency to look at other people, at other groups, thinking deep down in my heart, those poor deceived people. They're missing something in the scripture they don't really have everything they should because i've been taught better i know better they're missing out to truth but they're really not open to it i wish i could help them failing to realize that in that very process i had become just like them how many mennonites and i'm not trying to slam them but how many mennonites are in church this morning thinking what they think Doing what they do because it is what they have been trained to do. And in their mind, they would very quickly tell you this is what they chose to do. But when you put them out on their own or you give them ability to do whatever they want to do, it becomes very evident that that's not the case. I've seen it time after time. And I could name more people than I have time for that have walked out of this church and churches very similar to it, who at one time would have very strongly told me they had convictions on some things, that today they absolutely have no convictions in any of those areas. And it's because we're not being real. We're not really looking into our own heart. We get to feeling like we're a bit better than that church down the road. Where guess what? The people there think what they think and do what they do because they have been trained to do so. I'll tell you this. One thing I've discovered in my life to some degree is it's completely shocking how many, excuse me, it's completely shocking how very similar people are in thinking they are right and others wrong. I know we don't mean this, likely, but I have almost come to the conclusion that if you would blindfold people in most conservative Mennonite churches and drop them down the road at what they would call liberal or other churches, far too few would actually be very different. I've talked to many Church of Christ people. I'm not trying to run other churches down, just to be clear here. I'm just going to give you some examples. I've talked to many Church of Christ people who feel just as strongly as most of us do that they go to the right church and that they have the right doctrines and they're doing the right thing as what I have to probably Mennonites. 
I know just as many Baptists that think they're on the wrong, right track that would say they have convictions for things they're doing, even though they're different from what many of us would say. I've even talked to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons for hours that were totally committed, totally sincere in what they believed and that it was the right thing to be doing. And so for us to sit here this morning and somehow break our own arm, patting ourselves on the back that we go to the Mennonite church and we've got our doctrines together and we believe it, we don't, yeah, we are straight on divorce and remarriage or whatever else you could pull out. Praise God, I'm not faulting us for that. But something more is needed than just simply being right. Because when we think we're right, we write the rest of it off. We need to live with the right. Let me give you another illustration here. Um, been listening to a story, and I don't know if I would uh, necessarily promote it to everyone. There's probably at least some of you I talked to a bit about it. There's a young man that was a Mormon missionary in Orlando, Florida. And he was, shall we say, on fire for what he believed, on fire for the church he represented. And he would go around, and his approach more or less was to go and meet people. And he would say, I have a special message, you, message for you from Christ. And then he would proceed to tell them how the Mormon church, as I understand it, has five pillars, what they call their five pillars, and Christ is actually one. But the other four are Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Uh, the Book of the Mormon is God's word. The current prophet of the Mormon church is, speaks for God, and I don't know. I'm sort of weak on my Mormon doctrine there, so anyways, I thought I, I, I know there's five. There you go, I think there's something like that. There's the only church, or the Christ's church on earth at this time, or something to that effect. Um, and, you know, he would wholeheartedly, completely believing what he was doing, go around and tell people this. And, uh, and what was sort of sad about his story, he said in all the people he met, most of, a lot of them professing Christians, there was only about, let's see, as I listened to that story, there was about three men that actually took time to talk to him. The rest of them would slam the door in their face, maybe even curse them out. And I'm not saying we can take special time for everybody that stumbles around, but he even made the comment, he said, you know, as he saw how Christians lived, it really was not inspiration for him to seek it. In fact, he felt like his church had a lot more um, energy, a lot more commitment than what he had. But this poor young man, as he would try to share what he considered the gospel with people, guess what he found himself sharing? He would proceed to tell people after his introduction how they needed this revelation from Joseph Smith, how the Mormon church was the church, and how its prophet speaks for God. Things that, can we say, are clearly false, yet to him they made sense. Uh, going, I'm going to give you just a little bit of his story. His uh, co-missionary, I guess we'll call him, they paired up, um, was a rather undisciplined young man in some ways. And uh, as hot there in Florida, and I guess they were on bikes the way it seemed. And he was just uh, drinking up all the drinks they had along. And after a while, he had the uh, effect of that and needed a restroom quite badly. And so they were dashing around trying to find a restroom. And the only place that was close by that they thought might be open was a Pentecostal church. And uh, so they're supposed to stay together. They're actually not supposed to, except for restroom use, they're supposed to keep each other in sight, as I understood him. And so he had to go into this building with this other fellow dashing for the bathroom. And uh, so they go into this church. And anyway, they found the restroom. And so he's there nervously feeling sort of like a trespasser, you know, uh, trying to think of what's going to happen next and he first they didn't see anybody around and just the door next to him came out 
He makes it sound like I was a really big man. Uh, maybe he was just really scared. I don't know. Uh, being in a Pentecostal church using their facilities. But be that as it may, this big man came out. And uh, so he nervously said that they're using the, 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 why they were there. And oh, he said, that's fine. He didn't have any problem with it. And then being that it was his duty, it was his job to be telling people. He told them, you know, that he's elder so-and-so, as they call themselves, with the Church of the Latter-day Saints, and he has a special message of Christ for him. And went over his spiel, or his talk there, and he said that that big pastor looked at him and just sort of like, I don't know, not really shook his head, but just sort of looked at him and was like, Almost like, what was that all about? Started, I think at one point anyway, he took him by the arm and he said, Son, it's all about love. It's all about love. And that was one of the three men that totally derailed this young man's life, if you want to say it that way. And late years, a while later, he met this man and he told him the impression that had created on him and how he was unable to get away from that. And the man almost didn't even remember him. But that stuck with him. It's all about love. And for the rest of my message, that's what I'd like to talk about. It's all about love. Um, so I'd like to, one thing I'd ask for, and those of you that didn't respond, that's fine. You get to correct me or just, I guess, agree with me if you're going to text me this afternoon, please. But in the life, I'm going to call these life motivators. Now, I got quite a few responses. I appreciate them all, and there's lots of ways to say some of this. I'm going to try to break it down. Maybe I need to, I told uh, Debbie, maybe I need to offer some of these people reward to come up with a better format than I have. Maybe that would get them going. Um, so I'd actually like for you to write my base points down if you, if you have all, at all the ability. If not, I'm happy to text them to you later. So as I think of life motivators, the reason we do what we do, I'm going to call this my list of life motivators. Number one that I came up with is, uh, I'm going to call it survival. I think one problem I perhaps have in preaching, that's why I come up with more things to say than some people's. I go to basic probably, but uh, survival is... Just if you throw me in a deep hole in the river, and I get all panicky, it's survival mode, right? It's, uh, I'm trying to, to get a breath. Survival would be getting hungry. Survival is, um, yeah, just all the natural things that you need to do, and we could broaden that, but we definitely have the motivation of surviving. Uh, I'm going to say it's natural. It's part of the natural man. Nothing wrong with it in its essence. I might touch on that a bit later, but it's the basic and instinctive desire to live and stay alive. And I would say survival in itself is an instinctive response. You don't really have to sit around and, at least most of us, if we're in any kind of health at all, mental health, physical health, we get hungry at certain intervals. If uh, we get tired, and it's all part of survival, it's not really something we put a lot of effort in, and it's okay. Uh, don't let it run you, but it's okay to pay attention. Now, the second one I have is selfishness. Uh, some of you had given me this one, so thank you for your help. Uh, Second motivator in life is selfishness. I'm going to, of course, probably call this a negative one, huh? At least it is for me. If you figure out how to turn selfishness into a positive, let me know. Uh, so selfishness. And I'm going to add some sub... They're involved in selfishness. I about wasn't quite sure how to do all this 100%, but I'm going to add three below it. See, the first one I had was, I believe, make sure I get my list right so I don't stumble later on. Is pride. No. Oh. Self, pride, and fear. Okay, but basically what I want you to write down then, except for maybe the last point or two, depending on what you want to do. So selfishness. In a negative sense, I was thinking about this and trying to condense it as hard as I could, and some people had a desire for acceptance and all that, and I feel like all of those find their place in these. I'll get to that maybe a bit later on. Um, 
The reason I have self under selfishness is there is some self-focus that is not really related to pride or fear. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe somebody that takes advantage of someone. Let's say I owe a bill and I just decide not to pay it. It's selfish. It's not really proud. I mean, how do you go, how, how, how do you go about being proud that you don't pay your bills? At least I, I'm glad I don't know how to do that one. Uh, or I had to think of somebody that uh, maybe some types of abuse or so on. You know, it's just clear selfishness. There's nothing to be proud about. There's not necessarily fear involved. It's just taking advantage of others for my own benefit, my own pleasure, whatever it would be. And so in that sense, that's why I have self self as, as a sub under selfishness. It's just those things that aren't really proud, pride-based. They're not really fear-based, but they're just me worrying about me and not much else. Uh, so then we have pride. I think we all know what pride is, right, unfortunately. Um, pride, a search for relevance among those that matter to me, a desire to be esteemed and recognized. Uh, so if I was to say this quickly, I would say all pride is selfishness, but not all selfishness is pride. Is that right? Uh, so I think all pride is selfishness, just to be clear, and that's why I have these as subcategories to the selfishness. Uh, then fear, I'll talk a bit more on these later, but let's move on to fear for now. Fear I'm going to categorize as trepidation of rejection or less than acceptance. So fear, fear can just be trepidation. I'm worried about tomorrow, what's going to happen, or I can go out and I had a, given somebody a boat ride some time ago, and um, it's interesting, actually I had a couple people. I had a 50-some that was pretty scared of the water and a five-year-old or so that was really scared of the water. And they responded a bit different, but they both had fear. They had trepidation of the unknown. They hadn't done this before, at least not a lot. And I guess they were scared of drowning. So fear is just trepidation. Now, fear can also take, I could fear about what you think about me. Uh, you know, fear is endless and maybe a bit more on that later again. But I would say most to all people have some trouble with fear. The surface, I would say the surface symptoms vary widely. One may have endless fears about the future. Another one may be more concerned about what others think of them. And others may be struggling to trust God's forgiveness and so on. Then the last motivator, thankfully we're not going to stay with just negatives here, is uh, love. I'd like to describe love... Uh, Love to me, uh, let me back up a bit. Selfishness. Selfishness is something that primarily occurs in the, as somewhat of a physical thing, not quite as basic as survival, but it can be physical. It's definitely mental and emotional, and it has an effect on our spiritual life. Whereas I'm going to say the kind of love I'm talking about here, especially agape love, is a spiritual thing that affects our mental and emotional and then also our physical and how we relate. So hopefully that's not too complex for the time I have for it. Uh, so let's think of love as a focus on others, caring and concern for and about others. So like I said, survival is natural. It's part of the natural man. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it can morph into selfishness when it's not controlled by love. So a person who doesn't, is not motivated by God's love in their heart even survival will become a problem for them. Uh, maybe sort of a humorous to short illustration of that would be. Um, some of you, I think, know the story of the two fellows that were doing, a, I think it was a plumbing job underneath the cabin, right? And uh, they got a hold of a snake instead of a rope, and the one threw it on the other. You know, the, the boy, it was his dad and his boy, the boy almost made, as this is probably a humorous story, so... As the story goes, the boy almost made it out when something grabbed him and pulled him back in and dad popped out. Uh, you know, probably trying to get away from a snake is somewhat survival, at least for some of us, uh, and that's okay. But for a dad to actually pull his son out and sacrifice him, so to speak, to the snake is taking survival a step too far, right? Uh, if you really had love in your heart, he would have left his son get out while he ran the risk of getting bit, but that's not how that one worked. So that gives you a little idea, and we could go on. You know, if my family's starving, uh, who gets fed first? If, um, yeah, it, we could keep going. I'll just stop there on that one. Self, uh, thinking about selfishness, let's break that down. Self is my pleasure and well-being at the expense of others. I think I covered that one well enough. Just more concerned about me than I am about you. It's probably a quick way to say it. Pride. 
Pride is an aspect of selfishness, and it may motivate me, but here's where this all gets sort of tangled up is it's hard to totally split these three and that if I'm a very selfish person, I probably do have some areas I'm proud of. If I'm proud, there's likely some element of fear involved in pride. Uh, I was trying to think of a good illustration for this. Um, how shall I do this? Okay. So I thought of the illustration of needing a vehicle. Uh, in the place and time we live, I realize that if you don't, if you're 20 years or older and don't have a car, you won't necessarily die as such, right? But at the same time, carrying out your life the way we used to gets pretty hard without a vehicle transportation of some sort. So maybe that's not the best on the survival, but to some degree, if you're going to go work so that you have bread, food to eat, you need a vehicle of some kind. So now, as this moves on, I'm, I'm at the car lot. I need to buy a car. Generally, I'm not, I don't know how you are. Maybe I'm unique. I don't think I'm quite that way. Uh, when you go to the car lot and you're looking at the cars, uh, maybe fellows and maybe ladies, uh, is the only consideration whether this helps you survive or not. Uh, generally, we get quite a ways beyond that, don't we? Uh, we get into a bit of self, and I wasn't exactly sure how I should say this, uh, but perhaps self would show itself in needing power. Uh, for us guys especially. Uh, you know, if, if you would set two pickup trucks side by side and uh, all other things are equal and I'm not too, too brand silly, let's say, uh, probably the one with, if one would have 100 horsepower more, that one would pull just a little more, wouldn't you think? Uh, just to buy, for most of us, Tony would be an exception. Uh, but uh, you get what I'm saying though. We go, we want something that we can connect to, something we like. So maybe for ladies and some of us fellas, uh, we would go more of style, uh, you know. Uh, it's funny, I can show my wife some pictures of a car. There's actually one car I sort of like, and she just hates it. And, uh, you know, just can't stand how that thing looks, and that's fine. It, but it's sort of selfish. If it's, it's beyond survival, and I'm not trying to make it a wicked selfish, please get me, but I need an illustration. So in that way, we could say self enters into that buying this car. Now, the next stage is pride I would more describe as what are others going to think about me when they see me in this, right? So the first step as I was using self is more how I, just what I like, what I don't like, what makes me, what thrills me, what doesn't. So now we're talking about a shift from just thinking of myself to thinking about others, but thinking about others in a way that I get something from them, if you want to say it that way. So pride is, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the... My closest friends, they, they think it'd be, actually, even my wife. I keep threatening to buy me a Ford pickup for my personal truck someday, and she don't think it'd be a good idea. So uh, I'm not, again, I'm sort of saying on the light side of this illustration, so bear with me. But, you know, if, if, if I go to the lot and uh, have things, this, this really looks like the good thing to do, but uh, Peanut's over there, and I know he's going to think I'm crazy if I buy this truck, so therefore I buy this other truck. That's pride, right? It's trying to make an impression on someone else, get their commendations, so therefore I have. Now, this morphs into fear. Um, I don't know. I didn't actually go out in the parking lot this morning and double-check myself on this one. Um, in my head, it seems that most of you all have a nicer personal vehicle than we currently have, just a little newer, a little nicer looking. I'm not sure if that's true or not. So I, I'm just going to say it as sort of a supposition that's correct at the moment. Um, so fear would enter into this purchases. I'm there and I'm looking and, you know, I could, this one's low miles, but it's older. You know, if I buy this thing, they're probably going to think like I'm a poor, maybe a poor, manage my finances poorly that I can't afford a better one. Or maybe they're going to feel like I just don't treat my wife very nice because it's not as nice as what some other ladies drive around. And so I let fear enter into my decision. You with me through this? So there's, like I said, I'm saying, but that's all really, they're all degrees of selfishness, aren't they? Whether it's par or style, whether it's what other people think or whether it's, yeah, what other people think again, fear, but not necessarily pride. I just want them to think good of me. And so therefore I have to do this thing. So now let's say I'm at the car lot and I go through that whole process and I catch myself and I say, why am I worrying about what Peanut thinks about trucks? Uh, why am I worrying about how much par this has? I really don't pull that much. Why am I worrying about those things? God, I think it's right that I have a vehicle for my family. 
But really, I don't need to impress anybody but you. And I just need to get the work done that you've given me to do. So in love, what vehicle should I buy here? Makes sense? Maybe you think using love to buy a vehicle is weird. But I don't actually think it plays a direct role. Because as I love God, and if, if God is predominantly who I love, first of all, and then I love others, guess what? I actually think I will be happy when most of my friends drive a nicer vehicle than I do because that way they don't have to compete with me, right? Not that they would. I got mature friends, but you know. Uh, so love would actually play a role as consider what God has for me. As long as it gets the job done, as long as I can glorify God in the process, and I'm sure not trying to down anybody's vehicle. Like I said, this whole illustration was sort of on the light side, but I wanted you to follow me through those steps. I'm quickly going to write two things here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Maybe for me, I call these tests of love. And again, I, I have a test for you in the next month. So hang, hang on with me if you want this. It might not hurt to write it down. Tests, let's call this uh, thankfulness. See, I have thankfulness, humility. Whoops. Need an eraser. And uh, I think I called the last one joy. You know, if in my motivation for doing what I do, if love is really my motive, loving God, first of all, loving others, I would say that some test, at least this shows up for me, maybe it's different for you, is do I have a thankful heart in what I have, even if it's not the best, even if it's not really what I wanted, even if it's not saying that I just park it outside the window so I can look out and get this thrill down to my toes. Am I thankful? God, I've got something that gets the job done. I'm thankful for what you provided for me, even though it makes Joe's got to eat humble pie. You know, back in the day, I drove a couple Honda Odysseys, those things. I mean, God bless you that drive them. There's nothing wrong with them, but I just... Honda Odyssey was just about as far down on the list of favorite vehicles I could have absolutely gotten. And... Uh, so, you know, if it gets the job done. One thing about it, a Honda Odyssey definitely helps with the humility part for me. Uh, it's just not a chance. But, uh, and then joy. God, I'm happy today that maybe I saved this money. I can invest it in your work somehow. Uh, I'm excited, not because everybody's going to drive. When I drive in, they say, wow, nice truck. But maybe they see something greater, the joy of God in my heart and life. And by the way, if you wonder why I'm sounding a little crazy on vehicles, I've been looking at work trucks and it drives me crazy after a while. So uh, at least that's for somebody else to drive. Um, but, you know, how do we work through this? And so, again, survival, keep it in control. Selfishness, it's a negative. You're going to face it, whether it's self, pride, or fear. How are you going to work with those motives? Love. I would say love is the motivator for the Christian, maybe a bit more on that, and tests of whether I'm operating, whether I have a love motivation is thankfulness, humility, joy in my life. You know, it's the strangest thing. I've seen people that have probably more than everybody in this church put together in things and in the vehicle they could drive and in some of those. And as I've got to work fairly closely with some of them, I'm not going to pass judgment. They're not all that way. But some of them are the unhappiest people you could know. And that's why I put joy and thankfulness down as a test of love. In some ways, it really has a direct thing. When you love God, you can have joy and be thankful, even if you drive the worst little old rusty thing that with wheels turning on the road. Um, so I want to face back here. In thinking about motivation... You know, as human beings, we're limited. When we face these limitations, I think, at least for myself, I tend to default to my basic motivator unless I make a deliberate choice to rise above it. So again, just back to the old illustration, if I'm at the car lot, unless I make a conscious effort to not let that control me, I probably will buy a car for reasons that are somewhat based in here, won't I? I struggle with it. Um, It's just what happens. Uh, how about my time? A time is, uh, it don't seem like you have to be real old anymore until time you start realizing is one of the most precious resources you have. So let's just ask myself some questions. Maybe you can do it with me. Who do you spend time with? Who's really important to you? Who do you spend time with? Are they the people that intrigue you the most? Are those that either 
or are they those that need you or build you? You know, I'm going to be frank with you as I, uh, maybe in our, we don't necessarily live in a big Mennonite community, if I can say it that way. But one thing that really has concerned me about some of those communities, how much, how easy it is only to spend time with people that are like you, that intrigue you, uh, people. And I think our church is getting to the size where I think we're maybe having a little bit more problem with that than we used to, is where it's easy to sort of just spend time with those that think like you, those that don't really challenge you, those that, uh, yeah, those that you sort of easily mesh with. And I'm not going to, it's not wrong to spend some time with them, but if that's where you invest a lot of your time, you're going to become imbalanced and it's going to create a bigger and bigger problem. What do you have time for? You know, I, I, uh, it's like I told one brother here, he, he's, I don't know, I think he was trying to corner me. He asked me if he'd be a better Christian if he'd go fishing. Um, I told him no. In fact, I'd prefer you didn't if you don't want to. Um, so it's not that I have any problem with this goal for fishing or whatever your hobby is, uh, gardening. Uh, you know, there'd be all kinds of hobbies, can't there? Um, but there again... I guess one thing I'll just tell you part of my journey, one thing while I still do the things I enjoy, one thing I guess I was challenged by is do I do it just because I enjoy it or do I do it because it's a good way to give somebody else a good time and to just build relationships. And I think it's, it's great. Uh, if you excel in a certain area, uh, you're blessed with a gift in whatever it would be. I'm not saying don't do it, but make sure you don't do it because of selfishness in your heart. Or that you don't do it because pride you need to show off or because fear you're trying to make this impression. But do it because you just simply want to share a good time with someone else and be a blessing to them in that way. Um, you know, I think the problem is too often when we answer these questions, we're, we're scared to get honest. Back to the one about who do I spend my time with. You know, if I find myself excluding others... We will often use legitimate excuses for that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've noticed this many, many times actually in myself, and I don't think it quite stopped with me. But it, it's funny if one person calls you and invites you to do something. Oh, no, I had something planned. I, I'm just busy. Then let somebody else call you. That means a little more to you. And, oh, suddenly uh, that schedule becomes flexible. Really? What is your motive? Be a bit careful. I'm not saying there's never any time to, yeah. I think it probably is a bit more important that if my wife calls and says, hey, I, I'd really like you to have a free evening. I just feel like we've been not had time to talk. That's probably a bit more important than if, uh, I don't know who should pick one of you fellows, says, hey, you know, it'd be nice to catch up again. I probably should make my wife a priority. It's not that I'm saying we don't prioritize some things, but if, if at the same time I have a consistent record where I have time for some people and not time for others outside of at least... Uh, the responsibilities in the home and things be a bit careful check out your motives uh you know just too busy as someone else's turn they're just not fun to be around so i avoid them you know another one uh, i'm gonna hit some of you here they aren't family really you know what I, well you know where i stand i really think church should be way more important than family now if you're living at home with your parents by all means and go to a family gathering once a year and come to church every Sunday. There you go. Now you got their formula and now we can move on. Um, no, love your family to death, but just let's not neglect the church family. It's all too easy to do when there's just, especially when we don't feel we each around and we start sort of gathering in our little family groups. And it's, I understand some of it, but we've got to fight it, friends. Okay. Um, or maybe another excuse is I did something for that person last year. Uh, I think it's okay to keep a list of who you invited to your place or who you took fishing or whatever it is. Sometimes I do a bit of that just so that I try to at least take everybody sometimes. But if it's done so that, you know, I can sort of stab my cottage, boy, I took care of that person for another year or two, and now I can be with the people I really enjoy, look out. You know, in our limitations as humans, we seem to have inherited tendencies that, that warp and obscure the true meaning and value of love as Christ taught it and wants it. It seems to me we fail to see what love does. We tend to warp love into something it is not. Love is not an excuse for disobedience. It is the highest form of motivation for obedience. When I love, I seek to please, not based on a fear of punishment, but in joyful anticipation of pleasing the one I love. 
Especially probably thinking of God's love there. You know, so many times, uh, in fact, and I got this, and even I think from some here, so thank you. It is uh, back to, I don't think I said this earlier, back to that Mormon missionary I was talking to you about. And listening to his story, I was shocked how similar Mormons and Mennonites are. Uh, now, don't go home and think I'm saying they're the same thing. I'm glad that doctrinally we believe some things very different, and I'm happy for that. And I'm, I'm yes. But at the same time, so far as our tendency to somehow try to earn our salvation or try to deserve love, friends, it's just not. We get this whole thing cockeyed, and I think it's a human problem where, you know, I would really like for my wife to feel like she's got a pretty good husband, right? And so it's easy to do things to try to convince her that she does. The reality is that her gift, the, the, my wife's love is a gift that I cannot earn or deserve. And if I accept that gift, it makes me a better husband, not in trying to earn her love, but in being grateful for that love. Can you all follow me there? And I see so many Christians getting that twisted around in their Christian life where they're trying to be good enough or they're trying to be deserving of God's love. And I say, friends, stop. Because as long as I'm trying to earn or deserve love, it means I haven't really grasped what a precious gift love is. Because the most precious things are given. They cannot be earned. They cannot be bought. There's no price you can place on love. So just humbly, gratefully, joyfully, Accept God's gift of love and let it change you. Yes, live a life of obedience, but not to earn, but because he loves me. And I can wake up every morning excited to serve God. Not because I've got this to-do list, but because I've got a God who loves me has given me an opportunity to live for him today. When we seek to earn or deserve love, we minimize and reject the very thing we need to change from the inside out. Yet, when we remain unchanged by love, it becomes evident that we have not experienced love. And I would just suggest to you that most of the religious, I don't care what name they have on their building, most of the religious people in the United States fall in one of these two camps of either seeking to earn it through things they do or in claiming that God's love frees them to do what they want to do. And friends, both are equally false. God's love frees me from the need to earn his love. But then it also frees me to seek to love, live for him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know if you remember, I shared this in a message some time ago. Love without absolutes, without the absolutes of truth is nothing more than mushy sentimentality. Truth without love is a cold, harsh law that leads to hopelessness. Okay, last scriptures for this message. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what we call the love chapter. First Corinthians chapter 13. I thought I was going to read it, but why don't you keep your Bibles open and I'll just read you my list. And thinking it's all about love. I want to be very careful, friends. While it is all about love, I'm not minimizing obedience. I'm not minimizing living a life for God. I'm just telling you, start with God's love and go from there. So, in this chapter, it's all about love. I'm going to put this in my own words, and you can follow along. I'm starting at verse 1 there. Love makes what we say understandable and useful. You know, in that first verse, he says, it doesn't, though I speak with the tongues of men's of angels and have not charity. As I think he's saying, if I would be the greatest college professor on earth with a voice that would just inspire you to no end and I would say these great things if there's not love it's empty just a noise love is what makes teaching a blessing to those being taught love gives meaning and purpose to faith love is the fountain from which good works flow love is long-suffering love is kind it thinks and considers others feelings Love is happy for others in what they have and in what they are. Love is humble. Love is meek. Love does not seek attention. Love cares more for, a, excuse me, cares more about others than about self. Love does not get upset. Love does not believe or share gossip. Love is saddened by wrongdoing. Love is happy when truth is shared. Love is always patient. Love is attracted to and seeking of truth. 
Love is enduring. It's consistent day after day. It's there. It's the same. Love is never ending. It continues throughout eternity. Love is what makes faith, belief in God, an anchor and encouragement. A faith that is not an inspired and infused by love is merely a belief. A belief merely held as such has no motivating power. You know, I can, it says even the devils believe and tremble, is what a verse of scripture. I can believe all day long in God, but unless I have love for God, I'm not really going to live for him. Many shift to fear as a motivation as it's easier to use and inspire. And I've wondered sometimes as big a problem as we have with fear in our churches, do we somehow train our children to be fearful? I don't know. Hope not. Fear as a motive negates much of the good of an action for love is missing. It is so different when you do something because you're scared or you do something because you're just love. It changes the whole dynamic of the action. An action not based on love opens the door to pride and self-aggrandizing or building myself up. Love urges and gives selfless purpose to the works of faith. Back to that uh, primary Sunday school verse. Uh, let's see, I was going to read some verses here. I talk, told stories too long. So, James 2:17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. I would suggest to you that the reason that faith without works is dead is because there's no love in faith. If I have love in my faith for God, I think it leads to an action. It's, it's unstoppable. I don't think you can have love for God and faith in God and remain inactive is how I personally feel about it. And I'll quit there. Love on that one. Love puts the joy and expectation and hope Thank you for that devotion on hope, Marvin, and I'll let that stand there. But, you know, it's love that gives me hope. Because, friends, if I was not assured and had not accepted the love of God, there'd be no hope for me. I can just tell you that, and that's good enough. So, back to these questions. What makes me tick? What makes me tick? You know, so many of us would say we know what love is, but do we live like we know what love is? Why do I do what I do? Why do I spend the resources the way I do? Why do I spend time with the people I do? Why do I have the friends I do? There is no such thing as an accidental Christian. There is nothing like a casual stroll on the narrow way. Each step, each motive must be honestly considered and held up for scrutiny. We do not have the luxury of being thoughtless. It's all about love, friends. God's love for me, my love for him, and then having that love in combination flow to those around me. Let's kneel for prayer.